0: Welcome to this Respiratory Compromise Institute podcast, featuring talks from leading thinkers at the Respiratory Compromise Symposium during the 2018 AARC Congress. The mission of the Respiratory Compromise Institute is to prevent suffering and death from respiratory compromise by optimizing its recognition, monitoring, and management. This episode introduces the symposium's future research considerations section. Dr. Jeffrey Vender shows us the growing initiatives regarding the role of monitoring and the management of patients at risk of respiratory compromise. Let's dive right in.
1: It's interesting listening to the last two talks and then taking the perspective I'm going to take, which is more clinically today relevant because of experiences we've had with monitoring, dating back to the initiation of pulse oximetry in the operating room, then capnography in 86, and how that has impacted the management of surgical patients. Uh, by way of background, uh, just to elucidate it a little bit further, I'm proud to say I served on the uh, BOMA board, Board of Medical Advisors to this organization, for about 15 years, years ago, and had a great time doing it few disclosures uh, relevant to this because I will talk about capnography use, uh, Medtronic-covidian, and then I am involved with the Respiratory Compromise Institute. I'm going to take a little bit more time because I'm covering a bigger landscape of things that we know and have studied in one form or another. You can qualify the quality of the studies on your own, but there's real data out there that I can use. And we're gonna define respiratory compromise again. We're gonna look at some of the relevant issues around non-operating room anesthesia, opioid-induced respiratory depression, which is a huge thing today, the role of monitoring, and then a couple of comments towards the end on what are some of the things that are being done and where do we have to go to reduce this problem? So as this definition goes, uh, Jim showed one early on. This is a single line representation of it. Respiratory compromise is a state with a high likelihood of decompensation into respiratory failure or death, but in which specific interventions might prevent or mitigate that decompensation. Now a lot of problems with the Medicare data you've heard A lot of those patients could have had significant underlying comorbidities and then the final step towards their death or whatever is the respiratory failure and nothing one was going to do was going to mitigate that any more than we have a high percentage of patients with septic shock who are going to die despite our best efforts. When we look at respiratory compromise, we're not talking about chronic respiratory disease. We're looking at it either as a de novo onset of a new problem or an acute event on top of pre-existing disease that can be pathophysiologically distinguished into different subsets, which was very well articulated by Tim Morris and some of the people sitting in the front in that 2017 article in respiratory care. Due to impaired control of breathing is the one we deal most with anesthesia, so when you look at high-risk groups where impaired control of breathing might be an issue, post-operative sedation, procedural sedation, patients with sleep apnea, opioids, and respiratory depressant effects. Physiologic response would be hypercarbia and respiratory acidosis. The earliest signs could be reduced respiratory rate, heart rate variability and the likes, and the monitoring that would help us address this group of patients who might incur it. Include things like pulse oximetry, capnography, in addition to visual assessment, which I can clearly say is far lacking in our ability to determine anything. Now if you want to think about it as a spectrum of disease, we can think about the stable respiratory illness patient, the patient with COPD, sleep apnea and the likes. We can think about the worst situation, which is respiratory failure and the ICU admission, and everything in that middle yellow area is what we're talking about respiratory compromise. It's that transition, that slippage, that takes you from your stable state to the unstable state, and can we intervene earlier? There's a clear difference between severity and risk. My focus is going to be on risk, because I think risk is something we can address. We can manage risk. Severity of disease, gunshot to the heart, very hard to deal with. We're not going to change a lot there. So we're going to focus on risk, which is the probability of a new issue not present developing due to becoming vulnerable. So what might that vulnerability look like depending on certain factors, patient factors, treatment factors, and area of care factors? Patient factors could be their basic BMI, comorbidities like COPD or undiagnosed sleep apnea. Treatment factors could be recent anesthesia, thoracic or abdominal surgery, which markedly impacts respiratory function, FRC and the likes, the use of post-operative Opioids and other respiratory depressions or any combination of the above and then area factors patient nursing ratio one of the problems with floor medicine one of the reasons we have these events and I will conclude in the end talking about respiratory I mean rapid response teams medical emergency teams I'll come back to that at the very end patient nursing ratio the frequency that vital signs are taken on the floor the use and type of continuous monitors that are available on the floor beyond pulse oximetry far different than the ICU environment. We're not talking about missing this in the ICU environment. We're talking about it elsewhere in the institution. But when a number of these things come together, this fatal combination, you get this perfect storm, and these are the patients we can alter risk. And I want to talk about procedural sedation. Because as respiratory care practitioners, procedural sedation, whether it's bronchoscopy, whether it's in the emergency room being called there for certain things, they're going to sedate patients for orthopedics and the likes, uh, could be gastrointestinal issues like endoscopy procedures. There's a lot that goes on in these two domains that lead to a lot of our problems. Now procedural sedation, which is the area that anesthesia has really been focused on, and work to reduce dramatically the incidence of complications is the use of hypnotics and analgesics to enable effective performance of diagnostic or therapeutic procedures. Uh, When we looked at our closed claims data of all non-operating room anesthesia, so NORA, non-operating room anesthesia, they did a closed claims analysis as a database and they looked at cases where specifically that where cases were filed that does not mean negligence occurred but a suit was filed. And they then assessed them and they found that 38% of the claims related outside of the operating room were related to respiratory events. Equipment related events was 21%, and then medication related, cardiovascular and pulmonary embolism were some of the others. When they looked a little bit farther and they compared non-operating anesthesia, the GI lab, bronchoscopy suite, IR cath lab, whoa, we're just giving sedation in many of those locations, just sedation minimal anesthesia care so we think when they compared death in the closed claims data for those events 54 percent death rate versus operating room events in the closed claims 24 percent and you can see markedly different uh, in that domain and then nerve damage obviously is the one in the operating we don't do a lot of nerve damage outside but more important when they evaluated these closed claims for the quality of the care, outside the operating room, these nominal procedures that we think are simple, the substandard care was 63% versus operating room claims, and more importantly, preventable by better monitoring, 25% versus seven, because we do so much monitoring in the operating rooms. We assume if you're outside the operating room, this is risk-free. That's our first mistake. When I take this graph that was actually adopted from a book called Reputation Rules, it's how do you look at your reputation as an organization, it was written by a business school professor. I adopted it to risk crisis management in medicine. And basically what it says is if you look at the dotted line, that's your ability to control an event. That's our ability to prevent this respiratory compromise from becoming respiratory failure. Before something happens is our best time to act. Once something starts happening, the stakes go up, but your ability to control it gets less. So you send the wrong patient to the floor from the emergency room, patient with a normal CO2 during an asthma attack, is that really a controlled state? All right, so you send the wrong patient to the wrong spot, but where do we typically act on these patients? Where is rapid response often called? Somewhere here in the middle. We never act early enough. Now, if you take this a step further and the difference between crisis management, which is on the far, your far right, and risk management, once something starts happening, we become dependent on identifying the problem. So let's say it's an arrhythmia, but you're not monitoring pulse, so you don't know what the oxygen is, just an arrhythmia. You don't know why they're having that arrhythmia, why they're having that bradycardia. Is it primary cardiovascular or is it hypoxemia and hypoxia? Then we have to contain the problem. You might give atropine for a bradycardia, but it might be due to hypoxemia, which necessitates assisted ventilation. And then we try to solve for the problem. What we need to do better, and that's the whole focus, in my mind, of preventing respiratory compromise or minimizing it, is anticipation of patients at risk and then appropriately manage them through prevention and preparation. Early on, 2004 CHEST, um, Again, as an anesthesiologist, I'm proud to say, I spent uh, five years on the board. Sydney was president, I think, during that time even. Many years ago, this is 04, it was recognized that supplemental oxygen impairs our detection of hypoventilation. And what's wrong with many of the patients in the perioperative period? I can't speak for all the medical patients, but one of the problems is they get narcotics, they get other things to depress respiration, and they can't get detected with the pulse oximeter. As shown in that article years ago, patients on room air up here, as CO2 was going up here, you could see the pulse oximeter was going down. When they're on as little as 25%, percent co two is going up here, but it's pretty sustained over 90%. And then when you're on more oxygen, it takes even longer. So the more oxygen they're getting, as long as they are ventilating, because those alveoli have a higher percentage of oxygen in them. Thinking about it a little bit differently, When you look at this graph and you think about the obese individual, the normal adult, the normal adult can be apneic for a reasonable period of time. Here's apnea for almost eight minutes, seven minutes. If they're a normal individual and they're getting oxygen, they can be apneic. Their O2s will sustain themselves. If you look at the obese individual or a child who has limited FRC, so kids do well until they don't do well. Their FRCs are smaller, then they diminish quickly. If you look at hyperventilation in patients who have compensated respiratory failure, which are many of the patients we see, again, supplemental oxygen on the top, you can see what's happening to CO2. Initially, you're hyperventilating. Your minute ventilation is going up in response to the hypoxemia. Oh, excuse me. But supplemental oxygen will delay that recognition a little bit longer. So that moves me into an alternative form of monitoring that I want to then parlay into some of the studies we've looked at and the changes we've made in, in the surgical world. Capnography is not unfamiliar to anybody who's sitting in this room, so we won't spend a ton of time talking about it or how it can be done, nor do we have to go through the tracing and looking at the end CO2, which is the number we're always monitoring here, and some of the caveats about it. Uh, we're going to focus on one aspect of it in the recognition of hypoventilation. But I'd be selling it short if I didn't suggest that monitoring end-tidal CO2, whether it's going up or down, has metabolic implications. If you have an end-tidal CO2 monitor in a post-op cardiac patient who's on a fixed-minute ventilation because they're paralyzed and they're on a fixed-minute ventilation and they get a temperature elevation, their end tidal CO2s will go straight up because they're not changing their minute ventilation but it'll be a direct monitor of metabolism or if they get cold on a fixed minute ventilation their CO2s will go down from a circulatory standpoint it has access technical tubing dislodgements etc we're focusing on the hypoventilatory aspects of this as represented best over by these four these are all the different kinds of capnograms you can see we don't have time for this is what happens with narcotics when you depress the respiratory rate or altered degrees of end CO2 from hypoventilation. The clinical applications in my world have gradually increased. This editorial written in 2011 by Whitaker is titled, Time for Capnography Everywhere. It's from an English journal um, in anesthesia. Interoperative use, it's mandated today. Non-operative anesthesia for procedural sedation, I'll show it's a standard of care today. It's not an option, and I'll talk about that later. PACUs and elsewhere. Hypoventilation monitoring on the wards for patients at risk for respiratory compromise. That's in the thing. That's what we're talking about today. So he's talking about this hypoventilation monitoring in 2011, long before us today. Capnography outside the operating room, again from the Association of Anesthetists in Great Britain. Uh, again, 2011. They did an audit of all their airway complications. 20% of the incidences occurred in the ICU. 61% of the reviewed incidences suffered neurologic damage or died compared to 14% in the OR. Again, OR management of these patients is really good today because of what we're doing. And the review cited lack of capnography as a major risk factor outside the operating room. When we think about this again, in terms of detection, it's recognized apnea of at least 20 seconds occurs in 25 percent of all the monitored anesthesia care we give. Detection by observation, as I alluded to very early, is very, very poor and very unreliable. And all apneic patients were identified by the use of capnography in this one study. When we talk about end CO2 and hypoventilation, again it's nicely shown here, as we are hypoventilating, if you are on room air, not a problem. You'll see that, you'll see it much quicker coming down, but most of our sick patients are often on nasal cannula oxygen. So you're not gonna pick it up as quickly, and we're talking about minutes of delay in patients who have underlying comorbidities. Does entitled CO2 monitoring and detect respiratory events prior to current sedation monitoring practices? This is an ER study that was done in 2006. So we haven't taken this very far, in the last 12 years. But they looked at 60 patients, acute respiratory events were defined as a SAT greater than 92 percent, of which there were 20 events. 85 percent, 17, had an abnormal end-tidal CO2, 70 percent before any change in pulse oximetry was noted. So again, early detection. Looking at a more recent article, meta-analysis, we uh, have an article from 2017 from the British Medical Journal. And their primary endpoint was looking at desaturations saturations and hypoxemic events. And then they looked at the addition of capnography to visual assessment and pulse oximetry. And what they found is mild hypoxemia, defined as less than 95% for 15 seconds, 23% reduction. Severe hypoxemia, less than 85%, 59% percent risk reduction. And assisted ventilation again a 53 percent reduction by the institution in these trials of capnography. When you break it down you can see all the studies for mild desaturation, severe desaturation and then assisted ventilation at the top. Marked reductions by the institution of capnography on top of the use of pulse oximetry. This is a 2017 article looking at capnography for gastroendoscopy procedures. There's lots of articles on this. This is one of the more recent ones but they, they looked at, uh, out, analyzed 258,000 outpatients and uh, 3 million uh, 3 million outpatients, 250,000 inpatients, 47 percent reduction in the odds of death at discharge, and then Outpatients' capnography associated with a 61% reduction in the odds of a pharmacologic rescue because of too much drug, and 82% reduction in the odds of death at discharge. Now, these are small number; these are large number reductions on small number incidences. So don't overread that we're killing everybody in these sites. But what this all led to in 14 was for the American Society of Anesthesia to restate. Even if moderate sedation is intended, and you all see this done in your institutions, patients receiving propyl fall should receive care consistent with that required for deep sedation because of the potential of significant hypoventilation as well as loss of airway. This led to an editorial, The Winds of Change, Progress in the Implementation of Universal Capnography. Again, this came from the UK, which never has led us in the mentality of monitoring. The U.K. has never let us, but they say strong argument on safety grounds. Procedural sedation should have copnography routinely available, used whenever verbal contact with the patient is lost, but the most important line is the bottom one. We have to appropriately train our staff in the interpret. Just throwing monitors on patients doesn't help cure patients. American Society of Anesthesia just came out with their most recent recommendation for procedural sedation and it says continual monitoring of ventilatory function with capnography to supplement standard monitoring by observation and pulse oximetry is their new recommendation. The European consensus 2018 facilitating early detection of ventilation problems should be used in all patients undergoing sedation and you can see the level of their evidence. Now I think it's important as respiratory care practitioners anesthesiologists, pulmonologists, that we recognize when we employ these devices, that not all products are created equal. In a very well done article 2015 by uh, Tom Ebert, they took 45 healthy volunteers and uh, they wanted to see the difference in different nasal cannula designs on capnographic monitoring. And the ones they looked at were the bifurcated system of Hudson the blow-by systems of MEDLINE and Salter, and then the uh, O2 via the multi-vents by Iridian, and then the separate one, excuse me, by Salter. So the O2 and CO2 nasal cannulas were separated. And you'll see the difference. This is a configuration, time-wise, of your end-tidal CO2s up here, and this is the institution of increasing oxygen flow, right here. And you can see it's pretty stable, very stable. But if you take a different kind of device, this is what it could look like. Same configuration for the pharyngeal O2 going up, but the end tidal CO2 dramatically falls. And that's what happens with the, uh, the Hudson device that I showed here, because you're diluting in the same cannula the CO2 with the oxygen. That doesn't mean it doesn't work. It's gonna be a stable number. It's gonna show you something. But as far as a true reflection compared to the others, you're not going to get it. And so here looking at mean end tidal CO2, you can see how at room air they all function the same. But if you don't either have the flow by or the separation, you're going to get markedly reduced end tidal CO2 numbers. You're going to think you're overventilating that patient. As far as mean pharyngeal O2, they all do relatively the same at delivering oxygen. Other factors can affect it, like nasal versus mouth, tidal volume size, diameter of the cannulas and the likes, but we have better and better devices today to monitor these things, whether it's in the GI lab or not. The ideal monitor, we don't have today. We're looking at sensitivity, just like you heard in the previous talks, making diagnoses. We're looking at sensitivity, specificity, reliability, and also recognition time. But I can tell you in the non-intubated patient, The end title CO2 uh, is a reasonably high sensitivity device with reasonable specificity. So I want to switch gears though and talk about, and just jump over here to talk about the new new frontier. So that's what we've been doing in anesthesia, but the new frontier is leaving the operating room and leaving non-operating anesthesia and beginning to go to the floors, which is what you're hearing about we know that post-operative hypoxemia is a common event so this is a study looking at to determine the severity of post-op hypoxemia 37 percent with at least one hour these are post-operative observations and we don't have time to go through it all uh, with at least one hour less than 90 percent 11 percent with hypoxemia greater than six hours if you look up here this is per hour, 21% with sats over 10 minutes an hour, less than 90%. Conclusion, saturation in records. Oh, and most important, as per the nursing notes, though, 5% had a hypoxemic episode. 90% of those less than 90% for greater than 60 minutes were missed. That is the quality of nurse observation, and that's not meant to impugn nursing. Continuous. Pulse oximetry and capnography has been shown to reduce that dramatically, as you can see here, and I'm going through it for time-wise, recognition of 11% versus continuous pulse ox. We can blame the Joint Commission, if we like, because they created the fifth vital sign, which is patients should not have pain. And I believe there's actually a lawsuit against them by an institution over this. It became the fifth vital sensor. Everybody's getting tons of narcotics with no recognition of the unintended consequences that can occur. Anesthesia has been talking about this since 2006, but this is the most circulated, news, most circulated publication in the world of anesthesiologists. The Anesthesia Patient Safety Foundation newsletter. Danger of post-operative narcotics, danger of post-operative opioids this is there a cure. No patient shall be harmed from opioids. Then the Joint Commission, realizing what they might have done, recognized all the adverse events that were occurring and 29 percent related to improper monitoring and preventable morbidity and mortality. How many patients are having this vital sign monitored? Well, a number of years ago was 13 million patients getting PCAs, respiratory events hard to detect whether it's 0.1 or 5.2%, and that leads to a significant incidence of opioid-induced respiratory depression. That respiratory depression has a high incidence of death and or brain damage The contributing factors are often many, but 97 percent of these events are believed to be preventable through better monitoring. And it's important to recognize that the majority of these events occur within two hours of the last nursing check on the floor. Risk factors, I don't have to go through them with you, but obesity, low body weight, either way is bad. Opioid naive, advanced age, or pre-existing pulmonary problems all have an impact. Why? Because narcotics depress ventilation. It will be masked if they're on oxygen the supplemental O2 as you can see at the top masks that increasing CO2 versus room air. That led to an article by Tom Stolting talking about continuous post-op electronic monitoring because what they found in their Medicare adverse events in the hospital number one thing was failure to, a, to rescue but I changed that was a failure to recognize Number three is post-operative respiratory failure, their recommendation of supplemental oxygen is used, incorporation of ventilation, monitoring, assessed breathing, and estimate arterial CO2 may be warranted. I'm going to finish talking about rapid response teams because we all have them today. So this is an article from 2008 that basically said pre-intervention and post-intervention. No change in outcome as it relates to the institution of a rapid response team. So was it failure to rescue or failure to recognize? So then this study comes out in 2013 looking at nurse response to aberrant vital signs. The only point I want to make is when they fulfilled the criterion for medical emergency, that's 82, no medical emergency response was called in 96% of those patients in that study. When we look at delays, this was a very large study, it was part of a merit merit trial in Lancet, looking at delays of greater than 15 minutes. The reasons for the delay, high dependence units, older patients decrease, you know, maybe we're going slow to foot. We don't know why the delays are occurring, but they're multifactorial. But what we do know is survivorship was directly related to the degree of the delay. So those who survived, 52% weren't delayed, Versus delayed, only 38% survived. So there seems to be a correlation. I can't tell you if it's underlying disease or not. Other indications for team response are many, but again, detection of SPO2 early. Increased mortality with delay in care. It's a redundant theme. So when we think of rapid responses, I want to leave you with one thought the system structure. The afferent limb seeks to prospectively identify deteriorating. Hospitalized patients by identifying predictors for rapid response. So, what's next? And this is what I'll leave you with. Basically, there's a study that I think the first abstract will come out at the uh, Society of Critical Care meeting called the Prodigy Study. It's a 1,600 patient study, 16 sites, international study, including the U.S., assessing t- 12 high risk variables for prediction rules from your monitors and your EMRs to detect and validate a respiratory compromise risk assessment tool. A earlier article in 17 looked at what was called an integrated pulmonary index algorithm. And I don't have, this was published in the Journal of Clinical Monitoring and Computerization, but basically they took a series of information over here, looking at respiratory rate, and then looking at end tidal CO2s, and these are all patients with normal pulse oximetry, so they could be on oxygen. But if your respiratory rate's really low, or your end-tidal CO2 is really high, you're not going to do very well. So they graded them, green is good, yellow is intermediate, red is bad. Now if your pulse oximetry wasn't right, then you came over here and plugged in those numbers, what number they were with your pulse oximetry data, and it begins to give you an index of risk for intervention. That's all it's about. So my final slide, and I will leave you with this thought and where I think the conclusion is, if we're going to do anything about respiratory compromise, it's not going to be based on clinical assessment. It's going to be based on our ability to identify at an earlier point in time the need to intervene. And that is what we call the afferent limb. And are we monitoring the correct parameters? What are those parameters? I can't assure you. I know in anesthesia, capnography has been the way we've gone. It will not be the way for everything, but it sure has attributes based on what I've learned and I hope example today. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks for listening to this Respiratory Compromise Institute podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, visit respiratorycompromise.org for more information on research, education, and prevention.